Can supply chains be more sustainable without losing performance, efficiency, and resilience? It's possible with GEP. With strategy-managed services and AI-powered software, GEP helps hundreds of market-leading companies build sustainable supply chains that are cleaner, greener, and highly effective. Supply chains that are good for the planet and good for your business. GEP. Software. Strategy. Managed services. GEP.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A year ago, Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz proclaimed a huge shift in a defense policy that's been notoriously cautious for decades. And he put 100 billion euros behind the promise. We examine how that shift is playing out one year on. And looking a little further back in time to 400 years ago, we listened to the work of William Byrd, England's finest composer at the time, and how his life played out during a period of tremendous religious upheaval. But first... If anyone knows Lagos, Lagos is a bustling city. But it's quiet. It's quiet today. There's barely any cars on the road. Because it's election day. Ore Ogunbiyi writes for The Economist. She's a dual British-Nigerian citizen and travelled with her mother to Nigeria to vote in this weekend's crucial presidential and national assembly elections. My mum and I are walking to go and vote. Say hi, mum. Good morning. It's good to be here. Like many other young Nigerians, I'm voting for the first time. But it's not my mum's first time. No, 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 no. How does this election feel different from the others? Three main party contenders. It's normally just two. And that in itself is something historical. And the turnout and the passion from from people is unbelievable. I think we finally found our polling unit. There's a short queue, maybe about 20 people already. And let's see what's going on. Lots of people quite enthusiastic this morning, even though it's literally not even 8 a.m. I'm going to be accredited. And then I get to vote. Ori, remind us why Nigeria matters, why this election is so important for the country. Well, Nigeria is Africa's biggest economy, but it only became a democracy in 1999. In the last few years, a lot of other states in West Africa have suffered coups, and there's a sense that democracy is under threat in the region. So I think a lot of people are pinning their hopes on Nigeria, not just to be a peacekeeper, but to remain a bastion for democracy in West Africa. In addition to that, Nigeria is also Africa's most populous country. So in this election, around 87 million people were eligible to vote. So it's also big in that sense. And right now, Nigeria is facing a range of socioeconomic challenges. So I think a lot of people are pinning hopes on this election and its outcome to kind of turn things around and reshape its future. I mean, that's why I felt I had to be involved anyway. Well, I have just cast my vote. It's about 11 o'clock. 
There's still a bit of a queue here. People are going to be voting until at least 2.30. Yeah. How was your experience voting? Really smooth, really impressed. Honestly, facial recognition worked. The flow was good. The camaraderie between all parties and people, totally fine. I really enjoyed it, I have to admit. I'm excited. But as you said, Nigeria has been a democracy for more than two decades. There have been elections before. What is it that's special about this one? Well, since 1999, most of Nigerian politics has been dominated by two main parties. But for the first time, there's a third contender who actually seems to have a realistic chance. Also, it's been expected that this election would deliver a higher than average turnout. We have notoriously low turnout elections. Although from the few turnout figures we've seen so far, that's not yet proving to be true. It is true, though, that many more young voters registered to vote than ever before. And that's really significant for a country whose median age is 18. Young Nigerians are often written off as apathetic. But with so much at stake, I think there was pressure on them as a generation to debunk that stereotype. So I spoke with one young man at my polling unit called Abdurazak Balogun. What is inspiring my vote is that I want to feel motivated and I want to have a better nation. Is this your first time voting? Yes, it's my first time. Are you excited? Very, very. I'm privileged too. Many people I spoke to in the morning, both young and old, were really enthusiastic about voting. To be voting, I feel good. Privileged to be in this time with everything going on. There's a lot of history. <laughs> yeah. I'm just I'm privileged to be part of it. And even for the ones that have voted before, this one felt extra special. I am excited. Uh, typically, I am. It's also a time to just chat with other people, your neighbours, and then this one particularly, because there's so much interest, so many more committed voters. There have also been attempts to make the election a bit better organised, and more transparent with the electronic verification of voters. And you say for years this has essentially been a two-party kind of election, but this time there is a spoiler. Let's run through those names one more time. So we've got the incumbent party, the All Progressive Congress, the APC, and their candidate is Bola Tinubu. He used to be a governor in Lagos, and so he typically has a lot of support down here. Then you have the main opposition, the People's Democratic Party, PDP, they ruled Nigeria up until 2015, and their candidate is 76-year-old Atiku Abubakar, who comes from the north. And then you've got a wild card who's been thrown into the mix, Peter Obi. He's running for the Labour Party. It's a tiny party that most people didn't know of before this election cycle. But I heard a lot of support for him at my polling unit in Lagos when votes started to be counted. He's particularly popular with young people. He's branded himself as a bit of a maverick. As this unorthodox guy, he's very down to earth. He carries his own bags, he doesn't jump queues, he flies commercial. All things that kind of seem atypical for senior politicians. And so by branding himself as being different from the norm, that's quite attractive to people who are really frustrated with the current order of things. And he seemed to be the favoured candidate where you are. Yes, so where I was voting, the Labour Party clearly had a lot of support. And that's even though it's in Lagos, in the southwest, which should be a stronghold for Tinubu as he used to be a governor here. I found a group of mostly Labour voters surrounding my polling unit when we went back to count the votes, and the atmosphere was just electric. Yes, yes, yes. 
results are just in and it looks like Peter Obi did not just win in my polling unit. He's actually gone and won the whole state of Lagos. This is a huge political upset. This is supposed to be a stronghold for Tinubu and this is a big blow to his party, the APC. And what about more widely, though? How did the voting go, all told? Well, in the morning, it seemed that things were pretty peaceful and even jubilant where we were. There was lots of, like, neighbourly love and camaraderie. It was quite cute. But my polling unit is one of over 170,000 polling units across the country. And as the day progressed, it became clear that what was our experience wasn't the case everywhere. So as we went back to watch the counting of the votes... We had already begun hearing reports of violence breaking out across Lagos. There are reports online already of electoral violence breaking out, whether that's people showing up and vandalising ballot boxes, burning them, people being disenfranchised. In some places, electoral officials haven't even shown up yet. It seems that there's a lot going on, but where we are, it's pretty quiet. Violence broke out in pockets in mostly southern battleground states like Lagos and Rivers. In some places, polling units were attacked by armed thugs. There were reports of ballot boxes being snatched by armed men in southern states. In some cases, ballot papers being burned. Some polling stations opened late. And in some cases, voting continued well into Sunday afternoon. The verification process, the kind that my mum described as smooth, wasn't the case for everyone. This tech was firstly supposed to make sure that voters were who they said they were to kind of minimise rigging. But it was also supposed to allow officials at each polling unit across the country to instantly upload their results once the counting was done. If this had worked, it would have meant that counting was faster. In fact, we might even have results by now. But it didn't work. Actually, officials weren't able to upload their results instantly, as was promised. By Sunday afternoon, only 11% of results were up on the portal. And so given those anomalies and and the, the reason people have been given not to think things have run smoothly or perhaps even fairly, how do, how do you see this going? This was always going to be a question of trusting the outcome. I think these lapses, these tech failures have definitely generated some distrust. The Electoral Commission has taken responsibility for the glitches, but the delays and reports that appear to show discrepancies are already fueling allegations of foul play and sabotage. Stakes were already high before we went into the election. In the weeks leading up to the election, people were struggling to access petrol, people were struggling to access cash, banking systems were down. There was already a build-up of frustration. When you add that to kind of problems that have been existing in the last few years, thousands of people every year are killed by terrorism or bandits or forced to become internally displaced people. Nigerians are poorer today than they were eight years ago when the outgoing president took over. Food prices are skyrocketing. Kidnapping has become a nationwide problem. This administration has failed on so many metrics. A lot of Nigerians are super frustrated. And so when will we know the the final result, such as it is? Well, given all the hiccups, given the fact that some people still haven't voted, it's going to be at least a few days yet. But early indications from the results we've seen so far suggest that these regional alliances, so typical of Nigerian elections, they've held up. All three main candidates are winning in the main areas that we expected them to. So outside of Lagos, Tinubu is doing pretty well in the southwest. 
Atiku in the northeast and north central. We're seeing some Peter Obi successes in the southeast and the south south. And in fact, a fourth candidate called Rabiu Kwankwaso is doing pretty well in some rather populous parts of the north. So an unprecedented level of competition means that there could, in fact, be a runoff. That would happen if no candidate wins two thirds of all the states. But it's still too soon to tell whether or not it's going to come to that. But because of how competitive this is, it means whoever wins, there's going to be a very large group of unhappy people. Now, losers are not historically great at accepting defeat in Nigeria. And so people are keeping an eye out in case violence ensues. But when the incumbent was unseated in 2015, it was actually surprisingly peaceful. So perhaps, just perhaps, we can hope for a transition just as smooth this time around. Thanks very much for your time, Ori. Thanks for having me, Jason. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Just three days after Russia invaded Ukraine, Olaf Scholz, Germany's freshly elected leader, gave a momentous speech to the country's parliament. Sehr geehrte Frau Präsidentin, verehrte Kolleginnen und Kollegen, liebe Mitbürgerinnen und Mitbürger. The word he used one year ago today was Seitenwende, a turning in time. Der 24. Februar 2022 markiert eine Zeitenwende in der Geschichte unseres Kontinents. It's a loaded word. Germans remember a big policy shift, now known simply as die Wende, the turn, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the eventual reunification of Germany. This turn is also hugely significant, a sharply different approach to the country's defense policy and a different stance towards Russia. Germany is Europe's biggest and richest country, but for decades it just has not pulled its weight for European security. Max Rodenbeck is The Economist's Berlin bureau chief. So when Scholz made his Seitenwender speech, there were really loud cheers from a lot of quarters in Germany, but especially outside of Germany too. And so in what way was what Mr. Scholz promised a break from the past? His political party, the Social Democrats, have since the 1970s preached a line of pacifying Russia, but here he was suddenly strongly condemning Russian aggression against Ukraine and lending full support to the Ukrainians. Schultz also vowed to end dependence on Russian energy. This represented more than half of Germany's gas supply, for example. It was relying on Russia for 55% of its gas. And Germany was essentially paying for Russia's war. But the biggest deal was really Schultz's new military commitment. He pledged an extra 100 billion euros on defense, which is about double the annual defense budget, and promised to boost Germany's defense spending in the future above the goal of 2% of GDP, which is what NATO members are supposed to spend on defense, but very few of them actually do. So for a country that since World War II has always viewed military intervention with a lot of skepticism, 
all this represented a huge shift. A huge shift, ambitious plans. It's been a year. How is the Zeitenwende going? Well, the answer is really pretty mixed. This government has met some promises, including, for example, being generous in its aid to Ukraine and also really hugely boosting Germany's energy independence. Mr. Schultz is in charge of a three-party coalition, and the coalition has been kind of unsteady but progressing. But especially for its toughest promise, which is about overhauling the very rusted and neglected German army, they've really dithered so far. I spoke to a former NATO official who's also a former lieutenant general in the German army, Heinrich Braus, and he simply told me we just lost a year because nothing was done during that year. But a more complicated answer is that Germany is actually a difficult country to move. I mean, it's got a heavily loaded history. It's got complex politics. It's got a very squeezed geographical position in the middle of Europe. And so the process of changing course is necessarily kind of clumsy for Germany. So if any progress has happened, that is to, to be counted as a success, you'd say? Yes, this vendor may be taking more sight than many would like, but there are signs that sweeping changes really are happening. Mr. Braus, the former official that I spoke to, I asked him, you know, what was his score that he would give to the Zeitenwender? And he immediately told me, oh, I just give it at three or four, you know, out of 10. He wasn't impressed. But then he, he said on reflection a couple of minutes later, he said, considering the scale of what Germany has given to help Ukraine, the extent of its energy transition away from dependence on Russia, and the sea change in public attitudes in Germany itself towards security, he would raise his score to about five. And one significant sign for optimism was the appointment, belatedly, in January of a new defense minister, Boris Pistorius. As is someone who's really engaged in the job and seems up to this very transformational task of pulling Germany's army out of its terrible state. So recently, when Germany hosted its 59th annual Munich Security Conference, which is a sort of Davos of security, Mr. Schultz could tick off plenty of achievements for the ballroom audience. So what, what accomplishments was he uh, bragging about then? Well, I mean, he mentioned that Ukraine remains free. The Ukraine is geeinter than je. The European Union steht geschlossen zusammen und hinter einer zukünftigen... He said the NATO alliance remains strong. Die NATO wächst um zwei neue Mitglieder. He talked about German help to Ukraine, starting with the fact that Germany has taken in over a million Ukrainian refugees. Wir haben mehr als eine Million ukrainische Flüchtlinge aufgenommen, mit vollem Zugang zu unserem Arbeitsmarkt, unseren Schulen, unseren Universitäten. And its commitment of 13.3 billion euros in combined financial and military aid for Ukraine, which means that Germany ranks second only to the U.S. as a supporter of Ukraine. Wir liefern hochmoderne Waffen, Munition und andere militärische Güter mehr als jedes andere Land in Kontinentaleuropa. And then recently, just in January, there were the famous German-made Leopard tanks, which for weeks and weeks were a topic of conversation. And Mr. Schultz was accused of dragging his feet on delivering these. But finally, he did relent and approve the supply of these tanks to Ukraine. So in a way, a lot of these changes are almost philosophical ones, but one that's much more tangible is the energy question. It seemed that Germany had almost tied its hands by its dependence on Russian gas. How's that big change been going? Well, this is pretty much a clear-cut success for the government and really does represent a massive U-turn. Russia shut off gas supplies in midsummer last year. And at that time, people were talking about the notion that Germany's whole economic model was doomed to failure. Yeah, instead, partly helped by a relatively mild winter and also to the fact that Germany has turned on again coal.
coal-fired power plants that had turned off before, there's actually been a drop in gas consumption by more than 20%. And this happened even as the government was splashing out a lot of money to secure alternative supplies of gas. And then as energy prices then fell down, fears of an economic slump that everyone had been worried about have changed into a much milder notion of how this is going to affect Germany. People are just talking about a small dip in the economy and probably a return to normal pattern of growth by the spring or summer. And you mentioned earlier that Germany's army was in a terrible state. What do you mean by that? Well, at the end of the Cold War, back in 1990, it just slashed its spending on the military. In 1990, the German army had over 5,000 main battle tanks, and the number it deploys now is just 321. And by some estimates, its ammunition stock would last only two days in any kind of real fighting. It's said that restoring the level of ammunition to sort of adequate levels would alone cost about 20 billion euros. So given the state of Germany's army that you describe and the costs that it would incur to turn things around, do you think that'll happen? Well, it's a huge task. And, uh, you know, until recently, Mr. Schultz seemed to be just as blasé about defense as his predecessors in the chancellery. You know, despite waving a big wallet, defense spending last year really didn't move. And it's budgeted at barely more than its normal rate for the coming year as well. But the fact that in January, Schultz appointed a really tough and capable new defense minister, Boris Pistorius, is pretty significant. And Mr. Pistorius seems to be off to a racing start. I mean, he's already demanding an extra 10 billion euros for defense. And he says that he wants, instead of the 2% of GDP to be a target for where German defense spending should be as a proportion of its gross national product, he thinks that 2% should be the minimum. And also, it's significant that, you know, Schultz always says that Germany will do what it takes to support Ukraine, which is kind of vague. But the new defense minister says very plainly that he thinks Ukraine has to win this war. So that does sound like a real Zeitenwende. But then again, Mr. Pistorius is not Germany's chancellor. Thanks very much for joining us, Max. Thank you, Jason. In 1586, there was a secret house party, and its function was to welcome to England a couple of Jesuit priests. This was tantamount to treason. Boyd Tonkin writes about culture for The Economist. One of the chief entertainers of the Jesuits as they came back to England was William Byrd, a musician who had an enormous amount to lose. He had positions related to the court and related to the Anglican Church that put him very, very close to the Elizabethan establishment. William Byrd lived a very long and productive life. He was probably born about 1540, and he died 400 years ago in 1623. He was born into a family of musicians and merchants, probably in London. Still in his 20s, he became the organist and choirmaster at Lincoln Cathedral, which was a big job to have for someone who was more or less starting out. But his rapid ascent didn't stop there. He became one of the musicians of the Chapel Royal, in other words, the court musicians of Queen Elizabeth. 
he and his slightly older colleague, Thomas Tallis, were granted a 21-year monopoly on music printing in England. So therefore, this is someone whose talent has been recognised and has obtained a lot of official favour and recognition at a relatively young age. Bird, so far as we know, was always a Catholic. And the remarkable thing is that he wasn't a particularly shy or retiring one. He never really disguised his faith, and this, in some respect, was because he had powerful friends, powerful supporters among the Catholic aristocracy and gentry, who were, in some respect, his guarantee against the extremes of persecution that other Catholics were vulnerable to at the time. He composed a great deal of music for the Catholic Mass. There are some wonderful pieces from the the 1590s, Masses for Four Voices and for Five Voices. But remarkably, he also composed Anglican services. Now, remember, this was a church that, as a good Catholic, he thought was heretical. But he was willing to compromise enough to create really brilliant and beautiful examples of the Anglican liturgy. Fifty years ago, you might have thought that Bird was slightly neglected, except among people who were real church music aficionados. That's definitely no longer the case. And a sign of this is the number of new recordings that have marked his 400th anniversary, the anniversary of his death. There is a very good compilation by a vocal ensemble called Stile Antico, which covers a lot of the different choral styles in which Bird worked. Hello, my name's Will Dawes. I'm Director of Music at the Church of St Mary Magdalene in Oxford. I'm also Director of Chapel Music at Somerville College in Oxford. And as a singer, I'm a baritone in the vocal ensemble Stile Antico. I think one of the most exciting things about singing the works of William Byrd is that it really does feel like singer's music. We're not quite sure if he was a countertenor, tenor, baritone or bass, but it seems pretty certain that he was a singer. The lines feel fun to sing. The portrayal of the text is as good as Purcell or Britain. And it really does feel as though every small inch of the musical line is perfectly crafted. The Birdathon has its origins in a fundraising campaign for the church. We had the idea that we should do a significant sort of day of singing. And then I thought, well, William Byrd's Latin music amounts to about 16 hours. So if you started at five o'clock on a Friday and sang up until about midnight, and then people went home and had some sleep until about 8 a.m. in the morning, and then we restarted at 8 in the morning and carried on until 5 p.m., you'd be able to perform all of William Byrd's Latin music within 24 hours. 
and in 2017 we did it for the first time. This year being the 400th anniversary of the death of William Byrd, there was no better time than this year to do it again. Bird very much stands at a kind of historical hinge or turning point. He really exploits the resources of the old musical world to brilliant effect, but he's also attuned to what is going on in Europe, to new styles, new approaches, and that makes him, I think, inexhaustibly interesting, as well as just extremely beautiful in whatever genre he chooses. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.